and welcome to episode 205 of Manage the Wild. I'm your host, Nick Madsen. Today, we get to sit down with a guest who has extensive research in wildlife in all various forms, whether it's ungulates or birds. He's been all over the place, and he's been doing it since roughly 2006. The guest I'm talking about is Dr. Randy Larson from Brigham Young University. He allowed me to sit down with him today and to be able to just pick his brain about different questions I've had about mule deer. And I'm focused on mule deer because uh, it's a population that I see on the decline. And as I was talking to him, he says he's very optimistic. So sit back and relax and enjoy as we talk about mule deer. I saw that you posted on your social media um, uh, about a podcast you did in which you were talking about the winter mortality here in Utah. Piggybacking off of that a little bit, can you talk about the dynamics of coming out of something like that, where you've got that reproductive strategy where you've had large die-offs in some of these areas that experienced, you know, 100% fawn mortality, but like 75% mortality in adults. Yeah. And, And that high adult mortality is not something we normally see or really have even thought possible like some people have proposed okay if it's a bad winter we might have 60 percent survival we might lose 40 percent of the adults we've all known for a long time that the fawns they don't put on any fat before winter they're going to be more susceptible their survival rates can be almost zero percent like you can lose a whole cohort of fawns everyone's known that for a long time what changed this year and what elevated uh, at least our thinking a little bit is you can have catastrophic loss of, at least with mule deer, the adult cohort, the adult segment. And so we're looking at, especially this year in Utah, it's the Wasatch back. So Bear Lake Valley, Morgan, Echo, I-80, I-84 interchange down to Heber Valley with snow was really deep. Uh, winter was really long, crusty snow. Uh, we also had deer that uh, went into winter. They weren't in horrible shape. It wasn't, you know, like a huge drought issue. We had some monsoon moisture, but they were not super fat going into winter. It was just kind of average. So you got all that playing around, and we lost in some units like 80% of the adult females died over the course of the winter. Um, 20% survival in a couple places, which I don't know that I would have believed before this. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, have you seen that before? No, it would be the first time. We we had last really big winter in Utah, we had one spot that had maybe 30 40% survival. But this is the first time we've seen it get down into the 20% range. Now, it's, you know, on the one hand, I mean, it, it's not fun at all, especially if you're a hunter and you're looking to enjoy the outdoors this fall. You're going to see a lot fewer deer in where that happened. Um, on the other hand, it's not, you know, these populations are resilient. Uh, it's happened, I'm sure, in the historical past. Um, so it's not, they'll bounce back, they'll come back, it'll just take some time. Uh, and I've learned over my career that I would, even with that catastrophic of a loss, I would still prefer the moisture and the snow over a year, two or three of epic drought, because with that moisture and snow, you're going to rejuvenate the landscape. It's going to go into the soil. The vegetation is going to show a response. The deer that do survive are going to do well. They'll be, we expect this fall, when we measure them in December, that we expect them to be super fat uh, and maybe as, as fat as we've ever seen. On that rejuvenation, is there a time frame that you look for when you get, when you get a lot of moisture? Like, is it going to be beneficial for the next two to three years or is this just a one-year type deal? Yeah, no, it can play, um, it can have decade-long it, impact and effects um, and, and what, what you see sometimes next time you're out in the woods looking around you know think about places you've been and, and look at when you're out this fall there are going to be places where maybe all the shrubs are the same age 
and, and that would maybe be, you know, you take something like bitter brush, the deer love, yeah. and, and we've, you know, you get, they're hard to get to grow. They take the right set of environmental conditions to, to sprout and grow. But then if they sprout and grow and get munched down because we're running a lot of deer, that's even harder to get them into recruitment age. So there'll be some things like that. I hope that are positive where maybe there's a chance for the landscape to rejuvenate a little bit, get some preferred shrubs that can get through that first initial year that's critical for them. Um, there are a few silver linings, even though it does, it's not fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, so you have a reduction in the deer population due to the, the die off, and then you have an influx in moisture. So hopefully you're going to see an increase in habitat or an improvement, I should say. Yeah. Habitat. habitat quality should go up. Um, there's a, it's kind of an open question as to how much density dependence there is in mule deer, but what's available is available for fewer mouths now. And so we should see that translate into increased body condition as animals roll into the fall. We should have good survival over the winter because they're fat moving into the fall. Uh, the animals get pregnant this fall, should mostly have twins. Those twins should be heavy and big next June. Like there's all kinds of trickle down effects, you know, that would, would give a little bit of a bolt and a pulse to the populations over multiple years. That's awesome. Cause uh, I just remember coming across the study that talked about when you have uh, a doe that is underweight, sick or whatever, and then she has a fawn or twins, then it's going to take them a couple of years to bounce back. And you kind of have this slow cycle that builds until they're healthy. So hopefully they've got enough fat. And the other thing we need to remember too, and it, I mean, for as bad as it was in northern Utah, it's been equally good in southern Utah. Like we're not talking, we're talking mostly about a winter that affected the northern half of western North America, at least from a meal deer perspective. It was really tough in northern Utah, Wyoming, Idaho, etc. But the southern portion of the range, like in Utah, we're looking at right now, we have record high fawn survival on a couple of the southern units like the Pine Valley. We've never had fawn survival this high at this time since we've been tracking the GPS collars. So it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, it's been tough in the north, but just as it, it's just as good as it has been bad in the in the south. That brings me to my next question. Uh, talking about multiple different regions, we're talking about mule deer dying in the northern, and then survival in the southern. They've had drought for. I don't know, what, 15 years, 10 years at least. Forever. And how do you as a researcher work with wildlife managers in helping them gather the data across a place like Utah that goes from the high is all the way down to that desert? Yeah, so they, we've got a great partnership with Utah Division of Wildlife Resources with some land management agencies, and it's a collaborative effort. The nonprofit groups that help support the funding, everything's expensive. Uh, but some of the story that's been out of Utah, Utah's invested a ton of money into GPS collars. And associated with those GPS collars, you get survival rates. We also get, when we capture them, we'll use the ultrasounds and we'll measure body fat. So you get a measurement of condition, how healthy they are. You know where they live from the GPS data. And then as soon as the animals die, we get notified via email. And, and then there's a scramble uh, with the biologists, with university students if we need to, to investigate and determine cause of death. So you've got an assessment of health that helps you understand whether the habitats may be limiting or the habitat quality is good or bad or whatever. You know survival rate and then you know cause of death. And then, but if you have all of that, you can start to make some progress in understanding why certain populations might not be doing as well as people would like. Uh, it's a huge collaborative effort. It takes a ton of energy, a ton of money. Uh, but if you do that across the whole landscape of Utah, which is really diverse, and most states would be pretty diverse, you're able to understand, okay, in the north, these types of things are driving these populations, whereas in the south, 
it's more this other factor. And we, we've done this enough to realize you can have adjacent mountain ranges with populations that are limited by different things. And so it's not always, I mean, there's some broad regional influence, like the winter. But there's also some local, smaller scale influences that can have a big impact. Yeah, I was talking to Jim Christensen. Uh, I rode out to the hog ups with him. And uh, yeah. we were talking about how Box Elder actually did fairly well through the winter, which is right yeah. next to Cash. And yeah. Cash just didn't do that great. Right. And how they can be side by side, but yet it's different factors. Yeah, absolutely. My favorite, well, one good example and, and that I think helps understand is we've got in southern Utah, we've got the Boulder. Uh, plateau boulder management unit, big, tall, you know, 10,000 foot uh, plateau. And people have complained about mule deer abundance on that mountain for a number of years now. And, and then adjacent to it or reasonably close to it is the Manti. People have complained about the South Manti for a long time too. Um, the collar data suggests different outcomes there or different causes. And what you see on the boulder is you see really skinny deer in December. Yeah, like the skinniest deer in the state of Utah, the skinniest deer we measure, uh, suggesting that there's a habitat limitation. If you talk to habitat biologists on the boulder, they would point to, yeah, we haven't had, really had any high elevation fires on this mountain for a long time. It's sort of old growth, conifer encroaching on aspen, and maybe not the best mule deer habitat because of that. Uh, and so that unit looks like it's limited from bottom up, right? Habitat limitation, production, doesn't really matter in my opinion, what you do to the predator community there because you have a habitat limitation nutritional issue. Uh, conversely, uh, the South Manti, one March when we captured them, they were the fattest deer in the state right next to each other yeah and they're reasonably close to each other um but despite being fat we had really really low adult survival like for a couple years in a row three years in a row we were averaging around 70 percent adult survival when it should be 85 percent and you're not going to grow a deer population if your adult female survival is that low and so you, you start okay well what's happening why is it so low and almost all of it was mountain lion predation and so that to us seemed like a pretty decent example of top-down uh, limitation where predators were suppressing population growth. Uh, the state of Utah responded to that with some aggressive predator management. In the last few years, we've seen like mid-80s to low 90% adult female survival, and the population has gone up. That's um, cool that you can use that collar data to help you start to pinpoint factors because yeah. you're getting your people, your students in there so quick to pick up the colors that you can recognize yeah. the difference between. And, and it's a huge effort in it. And it's not just our, it's, it's the state of Utah, the biologists from the state of Utah, it's the land management, you know, agencies and their biologists. And then students we fill in if it's, if someone's busy or sometimes that we have some gnarly hike that we need some young kid to go after. We'll, we'll call <laughs> send them up on that. Yeah. That leads me to my next question. And, and it probably comes from the, a lack of communication or the wrong communication. So you have one unit that's affected by habitat, another unit that's affected by predators, but it seems like the message is all of these units are affected by predators. And so then there's a real push to remove predators. Have you seen, are, are predators really that bad across the state? Or is it just single individual units that are highly targeted and then the wrong message gets put out? Yeah, that's a, it's a lot, uh, it's a lot, it's a loaded question. Lot. It's complex. You know, the way I think about it, there's always something limiting a population. So populations would be growing if it were not for something. <laughs> um, if you look across the state of Utah, we have about 30 management units and we've investigated really intensely maybe half of those, so maybe 15 or so 
of those 15, we could point pretty convincingly to maybe four or five that look like they have some predator limitation, some top-down regulation and suppression. And then there would be another 10 or so that look like it's more bottom-up and habitat limitation. So it's a mixed bag. Um, it's and and you might you need to work on everything in my opinion. Um, it just can't be one thing. Can't be yeah. It can't be one thing. And, and the relationships are intertwined. For example, if you are in poor shape as a deer, you are a lightweight fawn, or as a six-month-old, you're lightweight. Your chances of succumbing to predation are much greater. Coyotes are more likely in Utah to kill you if you are in poor shape, skinny, or a lightweight animal. And so there's this interconnectedness. Do you work on, are you better off suppressing the coyotes or are you better off trying to increase the condition and the health and the body size of the animals? And, but my point would be if you have the data on condition, body fat, body weight, you have causes of death and survival rates, you can start teasing that apart and see where you should put money and what would be the, the most effective for a particular management unit. Okay. So an area like Morgan, Southridge, that had large die-off yeah. uh, habitat, there's some habitat issues there. How, where would you start to fix a place like that with the data available? Because so it, it's largely private, right? Yeah, there's a lot of private land. There's, there's a fair bit of grazing. What's interesting about the, place where, the places where it was really bad are also places where traditionally the deer are usually skinnier than you would predict based on latitude. There's a latitudinal relationship. Our fattest deer are up north typically, and they get thinner as you move south. But the, the Morgan South Ridge is one that's just slightly below the cache and it should in theory be they should be fatter in december when we catch them they're usually a percent or two which is kind of a big deal if we're talking body fat um lower than we would expect suggesting that something's not quite right relative to summer range now what that is i'm not sure uh some people have suggested it's grazing regime. Others have suggested there's too many total mouths, there's too many elk, uh, etc. I don't know on that exactly what it is, but the fact that you are about 2% lower body fat consistently than the surrounding units at the same latitude suggests something's not quite there from a summer range, summer nutrition standpoint. And uh, I think people we're working on it. We're trying to figure that out. Um, it's caught people's attention, especially this year with the die-off. And so maybe there'll be some answers that come out in the next few years. But you're able to pinpoint it to that. Uh, Is 2% significant statistically? Uh, yes, because you're talking about they don't really get much lower than 4% without dying. And sort of the, the highest you ever see is upper teens in terms of body fat. So if you're going to average, you know, 11% on the cash unit, but then right below you on the Morgan, you're only 9%. That's a big deal. Then you're automatically on the verge of starvation before you get deep you're into not, it. You're not on the verge at nine, but, but by December, January, then you're adjacent unit, which suggests something's different on summer range. Yeah. I was just uh, up there, uh, just North of that, of Morgan Southridge unit and uh, I came across some and I guess the ranch had flown uh, aerial flown um, or they went in and sprayed a bunch of the habitat because they're trying to increase their cattle and oh. they basically f killed off 10,000 acres of bitter brush and snowberries and yeah. all those different things and, and that just makes it a challenge when you're worried about a population like that killing off that yeah how long term is there some changes in the rut and reproduction with a, a population that's reduced like that, where you lost probably a lot of your younger class deer 
your males. And then you, so you have a, a certain age class, like between three to five years old or four to seven. Does that change your reproduction at all? Do you see lower success rate or do you see a success rate increase because there's less deer on the landscape? Every time we've ever measured pregnancy rates, which we do every single year, they're almost in mule deer. They're always really high. Uh, like eight, the lowest I think I've ever seen might be 88%, and we're regularly above 90 uh, to where you you know you catch 40 animals and maybe one or two are not pregnant. That's consistent across all the years and all the places we've ever looked at that. Um, so they're very fertile. Yeah, and, and their reproductive and their life history strategy would be regardless of what shape I'm in, regardless of whether it's a good or a bad year, I'm going to try and reproduce this year. Elk have a different strategy, on the other hand, where they're much longer lived. And so you'll often see pregnancy rates, at least we have in drought years, be down in the 50, 60% range. Like the females are almost choosing. Not uh, to pull off and, and put their energy into a better year uh, and to preserve their own you know reproductive potential into the future. But for mule deer, with the buck doe ratios we run in this in Utah, with bad years, good years relative to precip, we've rarely seen anything, haven't seen anything lower than about 88, 87% pregnancy. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't realize it was so high. You do see twinning rates that are likely more variable. So in good years, twinning rates are up for prime age females. Twinning rates are higher. And then you'll see bigger, healthier fawns in June. Yeah, that's cool. But, but on the pregnancy side, they're no, there's no change. Yeah. They're not effective. Okay. Yeah. Kind of switching gears a little um, with uh, the way that Utah is growing, especially along the Wasatch Front, and they're pushing into that habitat. Are there traits that are now being negatively affected by that mule deer have that are now being negatively affected, like the amount of light that's going on or the amount of traffic? Are, is there things that would negatively affect deer just because of the way they are? Yeah, that's a good question. Like, what's the how our animals responding to increased urbanization. Um, the one thing we're pretty focused on in Utah is trying to understand where the migration routes are. So, you know, several states, Wyoming, Utah, have a migration initiative. Uh, Utah's got one that's now maybe three or four or five years old. And the whole goal there is to try and almost get ahead of the curve uh, to try and understand where are critical migration routes, corridors, where are these animals crossing the roads? And then we, if we can get that information available to like Department of Transportation, when they redo freeways or they build new roads, we can get underpasses, overpasses in place that would preserve those kinds of corridors. Uh, so that's a big effort now, which is trying to almost get ahead of that. Uh, we would be fooling ourselves if we think, you know, we can grow double our human population in the next 50 years and not have, of course, some losses in terms of wildlife populations. So that's going to happen. Uh, those two kind of go hand in hand. But if we can plan and grow um, with additional data and information, then we can probably do better than we would otherwise. So here's an example. The city of uh, Eagle Mountain, which is growing yeah. like crazy west of Utah Lake uh, and southwest of the Great Salt Lake. There are deer that have a traditional migratory route across the main highway there, right through the city. And we didn't really know that. there were I mean, there was roadkill data that would show you you're hitting a lot on these particular milepost areas, but we didn't know that there was a really big corridor right through the city. That information we collected with GPS College a few years ago in the city, the county, uh, nonprofit groups, and DITA, you know, Utah Division of Wildlife Resources are working really hard now to install um, a, a better fence system that would alert motorists of when animals are on the, on the road. The city's very interested in keeping that 
corridor and that and preserving that you know that adds value to quality of life in that city to have have that kind of thing and so if you can get the information in front of people you can start to actually make some positive changes even though eagle mountain is going to continue to grow yeah we will we'll be able to preserve a little bit of that migratory route do you find yourself in situations like that consulting with cities or the state working on situations like this is this so, part of your duties as a professor I'm happy to talk to anybody. Uh, um, what I get a lot of enjoyment out of is is making the data and the information. It's all of our data, right? These are the species that we all love. Um, it's, it's, and so, it, getting the turning the data into information that could then be used to make decisions and to, into a planning process. That's a lot of fun for me. Uh, you know, and it, and it's a huge lift, and it takes a ton of effort and work from everybody but you know a lot of times the data and the information will speak for themselves right you can show a map or you can animate an animals or a bunch of animals movement paths you can see where they're getting stuck or where they're crossing the roads and those kind of visuals will oftentimes be all you need to get people to understand the scope of the issue and what some of the solutions might be yeah, I think you just posted one on social media talking about a deer that for years has crossed a drainage, no problem, and then it just ran into a wall this year. Yeah, yeah, you see stories like that. So, yeah, those. Indi- I think we as humans connect with individual stories because we're living our own individual story too. And so, you know, we we at the scientific level, we're working on populations, and the individuals are not always crucial to population growth or, or stability, but we as humans do connect reasonably well with like an individual animal story. So you see some of that. That makes sense. Uh, oftentimes when I was working for the division, uh, people would talk to me about an individual deer and the Utah Division of Wildlife is focused on populations. They don't have time. So I, I think I think that makes sense. Uh, it just kind of clicked for me that that's probably where some disconnect between people who wildlife managers and the general public sure. is they care yeah. about that individual in their backyard versus the overall population. Huh. Yeah. I like that. Uh, speaking of, Oh, go ahead. Populations are made up of individuals for sure, but we do want healthy populations and the actual fate of one particular individual usually isn't that crucial, but we do as humans, because we are individuals. I think we have a strong, we get that. We connect with those stories. I like that. Speaking of migration, is there some challenges you're seeing from the collar data for the future of mule deer as you're watching uh, this urbanization happen? Is there yeah, some challenges? Certainly, yeah. Um, it looks like for most ungulates that knowledge about where to go, where the routes are, when to migrate, that looks like it's passed on from it's not innate. Uh, so it's it's social learning. They have to the young animals have to learn from the older animals, you know where to go and, and and how to migrate and that kind of a thing. And so you can because that's not innate and inherent, you can lose it. And so that's one thing west wide that everybody's worried about. There's been federal money made available to help the western states try and and get ahead of human growth so that we can learn where those corridors are and then preserve them and save them because you you there is real potential for those to be lost within just a generation or two or three uh because the young animals learn from the older animals where to go so that's that's something that we all should be thinking about for sure do you think that uh there is um research out there that shows that deer are choosing not to migrate because of the amount of resources available to them because of ag? Or do you think they would still continue to migrate? Oh, that's a great question. The, um, across Utah, you see a real diversity in what you might call migratory propensity. So the proportion of animals from a particular herd unit that actually migrate that varies a lot. On oh. some units, almost all the animals are migratory, like 80, 90%. On other units, it's much less, like even 30, 40% are migratory. 
so there's all kinds of variation. And then even if you classify 90% of a particular herd unit as migratory, there will be animals and deer within that 90% with all kinds of different migratory strategies. They're not going to the same location. Right. They're not always going to the same location. So it's tremendously variable. Um, in order, I mean, we can think long-term and big picture, in order for migration to, one, evolve, and two, continue, it's got to be advantageous for them somehow. And so you think about, um, you know, agricultural resources, that, yeah, sure. I mean, you could envision a scenario where deer that, that didn't migrate, that were resident deer that had access to agricultural food and good nutrition, maybe it's not worth migrating, right? Or, or maybe those that don't migrate have higher survival than those that do because they're not expending as much energy or exposing themselves to as much predation risk or roadkill risk, et cetera. And so you, you can, I could see those things shifting over time for sure. Is there certain habitat types, I, I guess, uh, region types where maybe urbanization is affecting migration so they choose to stay? Is, like if you're seeing 90% in a unit of migration, is that uh, more, is there less people in that unit that allows? Yeah, those, it's, it's, it's tough to predict those. Um, like one of our most, our, our strong migratory herds is the Ponscomp mule deer herd in southern Utah. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, up in the upper 80s, low 90% of animals that migrate. The cash unit, on the other hand, there's probably 30, 40% of the animals that are almost resident animals. Uh, and so I think some of the trade-offs relate to the quality of summer range versus winter range. And then like the differential, how much better is summer range uh, for a deer on the Ponsagant that migrates compared to a deer that stays on winter range. So if you stay down by Kanab, it's a hot, you know, dry, hot summer there. Whereas if you stay at Hardware Ranch, you can both winter and summer at Hardware Ranch. And anyways, I think it's that differential between quality of summer and winter that leads to it. But what we ought to be worried about would be our impact on that uh, in terms of like highways, fencing, uh, some of those kinds of things, because you could and can disrupt those routes with you know, vehicle traffic or fencing. Yeah, I did hear some stories about uh, I-15, I-84, how there used to be a lot more migration yeah. happening in Box Elder, and then they virtually cut it off. Yeah, I think if we could go back in time and we had GPS collar technology, yep. there would probably be some pretty big migrations west across I-15 all along the whole state of Utah. And yeah. maybe we would have designed that freeway a little differently or moved it a little bit. Um, Hindsight's twenty twenty, but yeah, I, I think I fifteen has certainly probably interrupted and, and broken up some migra traditional migratory routes. Okay, uh, is there some what what challenges do you see with habitat? Uh, for me, it seems that habitat is one of the hardest things to fix, or takes the longest. Is there anything that you're seeing that's positive coming out of habitat? Sure, oh, I'm an optimist, uh, Nick. <laughs> so we. But we have some real challenges, right? And a lot of those are what we see, especially on, on lower elevation, sagebrush. You know, we've got invasive cheatgrass. We've got increased fire risk because of that. Um, those are really challenging and tough issues. Uh, but, you know, Utah's got, for example, the Watershed Restoration Initiative many millions of dollars, some of the best minds involved in restoring, actively working to restore landscapes. We're treating, you know, tens of thousands of acres annually in this state at huge cost. And, you, I, you know, we're seeing results. We, uh, Kent Hersey, if, if you know Kent, who works for Utah Division of Wildlife Resources, is right in the middle of some analysis that's showing some positive influence from those habitat treatments on uh, body fat in mule deer. Uh, there's innovative work being done in the central part of the state with aspen restoration. 
So mechanical treatment of aspen, conifer to try and stop that invasion. Yeah, we've had we've had a fair number of fires over the last decade, but many of them have been positive. You know, if they're if they're at high elevation, uh, you see a positive response a lot of times in the plant communities there. So there's huge challenges, and I don't want to minimize those, but there's also room for some optimism. Uh, our technology and our ability to understand what the plants and the habitat needs, what the animals need, that's getting better and better and better. And so I choose to be an optimist, Nick. Uh, I think we can make progress despite despite our challenges. Yeah, there are a few. Uh, to help me understand um, the research process a little better, can you talk about how you pick people to be on your group? Like when you start a new study, how do you go about picking other professors or you know, to be on that study. I just don't, I've never talked to anybody about that process. Yeah. So I'm trying to think how to jump into that. Um, we have wonderful collaborative relationships with state and federal biologists. And so, it, you know, I, I don't really know if it could be any better. Uh, we've got a really open, good lines of communication, working really closely with, you know, like, Utah Division of Wildlife Resources, what are the research needs? What are the questions that uh, we need answers to so that we can manage these species better? And then research projects always need people and money. Yeah. So we've also, as part of our partnerships and collaborative relationships, we've got relationships with like Mule Deer Foundation, Sportsman for Fish and Wildlife. They help raise the funds and we're able to leverage state, private, and then university resources to get stuff done. And it, and it works really well that way. Um, usually there's some question that needs to be answered. Uh, Where does the it, question generally come from? Is it from you as the professor or as the researcher, or is it coming from the state or a private? All of the above. All of the above. Uh, a lot of times those questions have, at least in our world, like a direct management application. Like someone needs information to make some kind of management decision. Uh, and so, for example, I'll give you a good example of one that just, just this year uh, with this big winter, Utah, in northern Utah, went into emergency feeding. <laughs> and decisions were made, triggers were hit, etc. But there was lots of open questions like, does this even work? Can we actually even make any difference? And uh, local sportsmen and women from the cash unit in northern Utah really started asking serious questions and kind of pushing that along. And so we got together with them, with the Division of Wildlife Resources. What can we do? Could we scramble? Could we get a bunch of callers out on animals that are being fed. We've got online already from Utah's monitoring effort. We've got animals that already have GPS collars. Could we put together a study and actually try and evaluate that? And then we, get, we were able to scramble and do that and get the right people involved, find the, the funding to, to do all that and, and made that happen on a short turnaround. But that, that, all, that kind of stuff only happens because you've got previous work into developing the relationships and having a good partnership and collaborative group. Does that collaboration change how the research is done based upon working with one group to the next in how your research is done? Do you find that outcomes are different based upon people that you work with? No, we still have, I mean, we still have academic freedom, right? We're, <laughs> we're going to still figure out the best, you know, I'm going to, we're going to think hard about what's the best study design uh, the data are going to be what they're going to be. Um, no, it was more about like how you're doing the studies, what type of uh, research tools you're using to evaluate. Not necessarily okay. are they telling you not to, because yeah. I don't think you'd probably work with somebody like that. Yeah, we're going to just go where the data go, where the questions go. Um, are you limited by tools, I guess, or options based upon who you collect? I mean, there's always some constraints, you know, with you know, land ownership or you know, resources. But in general, we've been able to work through most of those with a successful collaborative partnership kind of approach. So we feel like, I don't, I don't feel like I've been limited at all. 
or the the Brock and I have been limited. We, I mean, we feel like like it's it's amazing. We're able to to work together, answer good questions, provide information that helps with management. Cool. Uh, some of the last questions. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, with the Fawn study, you've been on for quite a while. Uh, how where do you see it going into the future with the data you're collecting? Where, how long do you continue a study like this as long as the state requests it? Or is there questions that you're con- still continuing to find from all the data you're getting? Yeah, no, that's a good question. One of the things that's been kind of a missing open, unanswered piece or of the whole puzzle is what happens between birth and six months of age. We catch a lot of animals with the helicopter in December when they're six months old, but obviously we're only catching the ones that made it to that age and there's story and information and stuff happening before six months of age. So the technology has been amazing and really improved uh, over the last couple of decades. And so now we're able to catch adult females in March, uh, evaluate with an ultrasound whether they're pregnant. If they are pregnant, uh, there's technology now that it's, it's called a vaginal implant transmitter. A VIT. It, yeah, a VIT. It would be the, the short term for it. And it has both a light and a temperature sensor on it that can be inserted into the vagina. It has like almost like a Bluetooth connection. It's a UHF connection to mom's collar. Oh. So we can get an email or we do get an email that says, hey, birth triggered. Uh, light warning, temperature warning. So those vets are, are being put in in like February, March, and then we're being notified day of, time of, hour of birth in May or June or July. And then we're able to scramble, go find those brand new babies, and then you can put a little collar on them that also links to mom's GPS collar. So just within the last decade or two, we're able to more more clearly and in a better way evaluate what happens between zero and six months of age in terms of survival, in terms of you know, causes of death, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so that's been a focus of the last decade or so here. Those projects are really intense. They're expensive. Um, but I do see them continuing because that's kind of been a missing piece, you know, historically. Have you started to learn something about those six months? Absolutely. Lots. Is it like, what is the highest mortality? Is it, is it region dependent or is it fences, badger holes? Yeah. So it, it yeah, we're learning a lot. Uh, <laughs> it can be all of the above yeah. everything, especially for mule deer. It's not so much the, the story on elk. Elk survival is high. Oh, is it? Yeah. Like just a, at last check, out of 25 that we caught as one at zero day olds or one day olds, 21 of them were still alive like last week. Holy cow. So you're running really high survival on elk calves. Uh, conversely, mule deer, you're kind of lucky if you can get 50% of them to make it from zero to six months. Uh, and a lot of times you'd be down in the 30, 40% range. This year, uh, this year there's been. You know, predation is obviously a common thing. They're small, they're vulnerable to predation from a whole suite of predators. But this year it's been more legacy of the winter. Uh, a lot of stillborns this year, a lot of animals that have only made it a day or two and then they've just tipped over dead without any cause of, you know, predation. Yeah. So this year that's been informative and interesting. That is because it's probably been different than it has been previously. So, I mean, bad winters suck, but you're able to get a lot of data from bad yeah, winters. Sure. Uh, when you uh, come in on those vets and you find twins, it, are both twins, if it, if it was a stillborn, do you find, or there was a death, do you find that both of them have died, or is it usually one has died yeah. and one survived? It's all a mixed bag. You can, have, you can have one alive and healthy uh, one stillborn, you could have both stillborn, you could have both alive and healthy. I was wondering if the twinning offset some of those, those yeah, deaths. It, it, it's, it's all over the place. You can have everything happen. 
Okay. Uh, I guess the last question I have is uh, you've been heavily involved working with states as uh, biologists go and make recommendations to the RACs and the Wildlife Board. And sometimes the RACs and Wildlife Board make decisions contrary to what the data would show. How, is, how do you feel as a researcher about those moments? Like, I'm just curious because you know what the data says. And you're just like, we can't sustain that high of a population. We need to drop. And that's the recommendation. And they go contrary to that. Like, how do you deal with that as a researcher? I mean, I, I have my own personal views, right? Yeah. And, and, and those views would, would be along the lines of, I think we need to get more young people hunting. Um, what I have learned as a researcher, it's hard to stockpile. You know, we're mostly hunting bucks in the state of Utah. We, we don't hunt very many female mule deer so we're mostly hunting the males the males in a lot of ways are irrelevant to the population from a growth standpoint you need a minimum number to make sure that all the breeding happens but once you get above that minimum number they can actually be detrimental because they're competing with the adult females for resources so a lot of the decisions that are made are, are associated with how many permits to give out for the harvest of males. Yeah. So it's kind of a social thing a lot of the time. Um, the thing I do worry about long term is there's a lot of pressure for more and bigger males to be in the harvest. Yeah. And what that means is you've got to restrict permit numbers to make sure you're getting enough of them through all those years, early years of mortality to get to a mature male. And so you're restricting permit numbers, but if you're going to run a high buck doe ratio in your population, you're generally going to see reduced reproduction. It's counterintuitive. Everyone always thinks you need enough bucks to ensure that all the does get pregnant on the first estrus cycle, etc. And And to some degree, that's true. You need a minimum number. But that minimum number is low, like single digits per hundred females. One for her, two for yeah. every. You know, seven, eight per hundred. Yeah. Uh, all the data shows really high pregnancy rates at varying buck doe ratios, and it doesn't really matter if you're 12 per hundred or 20 per hundred or 30 per hundred. They're all going to get pregnant, all the females. But as soon as you go above like 20, 25, 30, up into our upper buck doe ratio targets, like you know some of the premium units that are managed for 40 to 50, 60 bucks per hundred does, those units actually have lower fondo ratios. It's not a pregnancy problem, but I think it's a condition where the bucks and the does are competing, eating the same food. And so you get maybe smaller fawns in some situations. Anyways, by the time you count them in November and December, there's a negative correlation with a high buck doe ratio being typically associated with lower fondo ratios. So that's one thing that I worry about long term is are we going to continue to have the pressure for large adult males, corresponding push to reduce permits, the jump in buck doe ratio that generally and typically leads to a decline in fondo ratios. Are we going to see that continue and more and more of that over the long term? I worry about that. I think social media is going to push it that way. Yes, yes. I mean, Instagram, Facebook, everybody wants to see those big bucks. Yes, you don't regularly see little spikes or yearlings. <laughs> it's a little forky. <laughs> Nobody's going after the forky and posting that. Right. Yeah, I think there's definitely pressure. I also worry about population objectives. Like on the cash, uh, since the early 90s, it's been roughly 20,000 for a population objective. And every time we get there, it crashes and drops down to 14, 15,000, and then we start building it back up slowly yeah. again. I often feel that it, it – I think there's a lot of pressure to hold more deer because people have this perspective. If you hold more deer, then there's going to be more big ones. And I just don't. Yeah. Uh, it's just hard to get that through that that there's going to be, maybe we are at population uh, and we yeah. need to drop it down. 
there's well there's strong relationships with nutritional condition of adult females and how big the fawn is and and then correspondingly how the antlers develop so nutrition is a big deal maybe the the biggest influence on antler size it's not genetics although that plays a role the biggest influence is probably nutrition and not just nutrition of the buck but nutrition of its mother and grandmother before it and so there's like a multi-generational connection with antlers and nutrition that's the crazy part is it's multi-generational yeah right and and we should be very concerned and interested in nutritional condition of our herd Uh, i think the division of wildlife resources is pretty active you know they've got really great data from the ultrasounds on body condition and i I think would be very responsive if you perpetually saw a problem uh, that suggested like the, the population objective was too high I think they would lower it. They'd be responsive to that. Okay. The final question I'll ask you is what happens if we have another winter like we just had back to back? What do you, what would you do with elk, deer, all of those pronghorn? Cause they're starting to face some, especially disease challenges. What happens if we face another yeah, winter? So if, That's terrifying. If, if we repeated what we had this last year and years, years, from central Utah south, you're celebrating. Yes. Throwing a huge party because you're now stacking back-to-back amazing, phenomenal years together. Uh, We'll have to see what plays out the rest of October and November, rest of September. Uh, Some of the data suggests that like a warm November, if we were to stay relatively warm in November, animals can pack on more fat. But regardless of – so there's still a little bit of – ways to go to understand exactly how fat they're going to be but regardless of that i would suspect they're going to be above average going into winter and i think they're going to be in better condition this december than they were last december oh that's that's good yeah so that's a positive even if the winter does turn out to be really really bad uh, i think we will enter in better shape condition wise than we did last year you would still see low i mean if it if it turned out to be just as bad you'd you'd still see low lower than average survival rates even with good conditioned animals in adults because you'd probably lose the majority of your fawns right but i don't in our history i'm trying to think have we stacked back to back really bad episodes i don't think we have what i do hope is that we're above average pre-sub you know, I hope it's it's a it's a reasonably wet winter, um, so that we can keep the moisture rolling. All I know is spending quite a bit of time up at hardware, and then with the biologist, things are green. There's so yes. much moisture high. Yes, that, uh, things are looking great. Yes, I talked to a friend the other day who said that, like fuel moisture from a fire perspective, is, is setting records for high. So that's good. Yeah. You know, low fire risk and plants are healthy and that should translate into fat deer this this december yeah i went in with sam the cash biologist on an elk that had died we went and grabbed the collar and just everywhere we looked you're like dude it's august why is it so green like things should be dead and everything was just popping and it was looking good so well thank you very much i appreciate you spending time happy to yep